easy enough. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer and go home. <laughs> yeah, welcome to what I've been sitting in this week. So glad uh, I get to walk through this with you guys now. So we are uh, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the life of Jesus. And Matthew is all about the fact that Jesus brings us into a better kingdom. And so he invites us to leave whatever small, self-centered story or kingdom that we live in and enter into his bigger story, the story of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount now. This is his manifesto for life in his kingdom. And he has just entered into the, the meat of this sermon, which is all about the ethical life in his kingdom. And so key to note here is anytime Jesus, or the Bible for that matter, talks about ethics, this is never so that we can get God to love us or so that we can feel good about ourselves or feel better than other people. The ethics that Jesus gives us are how those who are already loved by God and have received his invitation into his kingdom should live. And there's a, I mean, there's a lot that we're covering today. And we did this in part, you know, a lot of churches will do entire sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And there would be a lot of benefit to taking a a week per paragraph here. But we're trying to finish Matthew before the next decade. So we're covering this in, you know, one broad brush. And there's value in taking a more panoramic view to get like a bigger vision. When you zoom out, what does that look like? So we're going to skim along the surface. But in general, here's what we're going to see when it comes to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. So first we're going to see... Jesus gives us the purpose of kingdom ethics. Okay, why does he give them to us? Uh, Number two, what's the practice of kingdom ethics? And then number three, we'll we'll just go go through some reflections together in light of those things. So first, number one, the purpose of kingdom ethics. Why is Jesus given to to us? Number two, uh, what's what's the actual practice? What's he actually mean here with all these commands? And then number three, let's we'll just reflect a little bit together on okay, what what do we do with this? Okay, so number one. Uh, the purpose. Why does Jesus give us these ethics? And uh, there's a number, but at least two really vital ones that we should highlight. And the first one is, as you hear all of that read, be thinking in your mind, Jesus gives us these laws to enhance relationship. That's ultimately what this is about. And you can see this, the very final line he uses to close out the intro before getting into the main bodies in verse 20. And he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then now he goes on to describe what righteousness looks like. And we hear that, and I don't know, if you're like me, you hear righteousness, and you think, oh, okay, so some kind of austere, pious behavior. Uh, But righteousness, according to first century Jewish understanding, was far more rich than that. Uh, Righteousness, uh, it, it gets at the sense of relationships in three dimensions, so relationships between us and God, between us and other people, and then between us and creation. So when he says, here are ethics to help you have great righteousness, what he's essentially saying is, I'm helping show you how to make relationships be filled with glory. In other words, I'm I'm here to help you make relationships be beautiful. So you think about a, a righteous marriage isn't a correct marriage. A righteous marriage is a beautiful marriage. So if, if any of you have grandparents, or maybe you've seen an old couple where they've been married for decades, and you can tell there is a amazing oneness of being and joy they have with one another, right? Just through decades of pain and laughs and fidelity. And it's not zesty, maybe like a college romance, but it's far more beautiful. And so here, when Jesus helps us live righteously, this is it's he's helping us live in relationship as we were always meant to live them. So that's number one. Okay, this is always relational. Number two, uh, kingdom ethics, they, they reveal heaven. 
And later on, we're going to get to this in a couple weeks, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he's going to say, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the most succinct way to understand the kingdom of God. So God's kingdom is here when his will is done on earth as it happens in heaven, i.e. anytime God's will is done on earth or when you obey God, this creates an intersection where heaven descends on earth, basically, and you get a picture of what heaven's like, because heaven is where beautiful relationships always happen. And so what it's kind of like is he's telling us that, so if you guys have read or seen, but hopefully read the Chronicles of Narnia, right, in the, the first book, depending on how you order them, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have young Lucy, and she's in the spare room of this big house, and there's a wardrobe in the spare room. And she opens the wardrobe, wardrobe, and you can see Narnia through the wardrobe. So it's, it creates this unforgettable picture where you're standing in the house, but through the wardrobe, you can see the snowy landscape and that iconic lamppost. And so it, it's essentially like any time we do God's will, we create a portal into heaven, as it were, where when people experience us following Jesus or they see it happen, it's like they're looking into the wardrobe, as you will, seeing heaven or they're actually seeing the really real world, the world as it was always meant to be, a world filled with new possibilities and ways of, of being. And so I hope I know that maybe this sounds like a little bit ethereal, but it's, it's an incredible way to envision like why obedience really matters, because you actually get to help create a portal into heaven for those people that you touch okay, in, in your life. And so that's the essentially the purpose of these ethics. And so as we get into it now, and even right now you're thinking, okay, that, that sounds like kind of nice and romantic. And, but as we're going to see, I mean, doing the work of living healthy relational lives is messy. And so this is going to be gritty and challenging. And you may, all of us are probably going to get squeamish at some point. You may even get angry at some point. But remember, Jesus' heart is for us to help us reveal the heart of God by living in right relationship in a way that reveals heaven. Okay, that's what this is all about. So now that we hopefully get a little bit more of a grasp on the purpose, now let's jump into the actual practices. And you can more or less summarize these ethics into three broad categories. So first, number one, Jesus talks about nonviolent peacemaking, is way you could sum up about a third of the sermon, nonviolent peacemaking. And so you see this beginning in verse 21 when he's talking about anger. And he says, okay, so you've heard the law in the Old Testament. You know, you shall not murder. But what I'm telling you is if you even hold bitterness in your heart, that's still the same corrosive spirit that eats away at you and, and eats away at relationships in the same way that murder does. Granted, it's, it's just a few steps before and so if you even, if you have an issue with somebody and you haven't done everything possible to try to make amends with that person, don't even come to worship service. So that's what he's getting at with anger. And then in, in the beginning of verse 38, when he talks about retaliation, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. When he says don't resist, he's not saying don't do anything. He's saying don't resist in a violent way. Uh, the word there gets it like how an invaded army would respond to an invading army. And when we read these things about, you know, turning the cheek when we're slapped, going an extra mile if somebody forces us to go on, we think that Jesus is telling us to be doormats, but that's not what he's doing. Uh, what he's saying is, 
He's saying, think creatively on how you can stand up to evil without being violent about it and throwing fuel on the fire. And so even just this example of if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If you think about that image, most people are right-handed. And so if somebody slaps you on the right cheek with their right hand, what does that mean? It means they need to do a, a backhanded slap. And in this context, a backhanded slap was one of the most cruel ways you could communicate to somebody, you're beneath me. And so when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, it's actually pretty provocative. He's saying, you know, turn the other cheek. So what you're doing now is you're exposing your left cheek, forcing them to now do what? Use an open-handed slap, therefore treating you as an equal. So it's a way to exhibit justice. And, you know, maybe the person will just be so weirded out by it that they'll walk away. Maybe, right? So you're standing up for justice without getting violent about it. And then the, the third chunk here, love your enemies. See in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So a modern equivalent here is tax collectors were viewed to the same degree as maybe many modern Westerners today would view Nazis or white supremacists. And so Jesus is saying, if you, you know, give a cold shoulder toward those who don't treat you well, and you're mainly friendly, and you mainly only try to do good toward those who do good to you, how are you any different than a Nazi or white supremacist? How does that display my kingdom and the beauty of my kingdom, right? Because even they do the same thing. This is really challenging. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's less prescribing specific actions we need to take in every, every instance. But what he's doing is he's giving his followers a principle. And here's how you can sum it up. The principle is when somebody wrongs you, resist the instinctual urge to fight or flight, right? So fight, get angry in turn, or flight, which I think is probably more common in our culture, where you just, you cut them off, right? You become indifferent, right? You may not say anything to their face, but then you gossip about them, don't fight or flight, but instead, be as creative as you can to exercise nonviolent peacemaking, i.e., if at all possible, enter into that relationship doing positive good to that person, right, in order to make amends. And as we think about this, I was getting more angry at Jesus the more I was thinking about this this week because I think it's probably common most places in the world. I just can just speak to the context I know, which is the American church. And I think that this is an area that many American believers just tend to pretend isn't in the Bible, right? Like we may get really riled up if somebody is living a like sexually licentious lifestyle and getting hammered on the weekend. But then if somebody treats us wrong, we're like, yeah, well, they don't deserve for me to treat them well. It's like an acceptable sin. And even if surveys are right, it seems like professing Christians in America would rather their enemies be bombed than loved. They'd rather them be sabotaged than prayed for. And maybe you think, well, that's not me. But Jesus is challenging you to think, okay, what about gossiping or cutting off somebody who hasn't treated you well or harboring bitterness in your heart to them? toward them. And it's like when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, we love to pick up the cross of Jesus if it means, okay, I just need to, I just need to lower my pride a little bit. 
right? Or I'm going to pick up my cross, I'm going to moderate social media use during Lent, right? Those things are fine, but as soon as he says, pick up your cross and pray for a white supremacist, befriend a corrupt police officer, right? Do whatever you can to pray and do good towards somebody on the far left or right that you can't stand. Suddenly, it's like, whoa, 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 right? Or even just take the uncomfortable step of going to someone you're holding a grudge toward or you're bitter toward and try to reconcile. We just, we don't want to do it. But this is completely opposed to the heart of the gospel. Like, the heart of the gospel is that God loved us while we were his enemies. Right, Romans 5, and we just sung today in the song, Worthy of Your Name. Uh, If you could bring up the lyrics, and you know, we, we sung this just a little while ago. You died for your accusers, that's me and you, right? If we were there, we'd have been doing the same thing. You died for your accusers, your enemies, as your blood fell to the ground, you redefined my future. Like, we have a future because Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. And so, friends, we, we cannot sing that with any kind of integrity if we then walk out of these doors and just love those who love us and only pray for those who love us and not do whatever we possibly can to forgive, to reconcile, to restore a relationship with somebody who hasn't treated us well. Now, yes, if the, if the degree of mistreatment and the degree of which they do not want to reconcile is higher, that does change things. But as a principle, this is what we, we need to do as followers of Jesus. And so just think about in your own life, you can think broad and more specific. So broadly, who are your enemies? Who are the people that you have a really hard time loving? You know, it may be people online. Okay, a certain sect of a political party, people who fight for a specific cause, and you just, you get enraged anytime you read anything they tweet or say. And Jesus would say, pray for them. Not pray that they'd go to hell, right? But pray that they'd actually be blessed. And see what that does to your heart over time. And then more personally speaking, you know, maybe not most of you have a capital E enemy, somebody charging at you with a shield and a spear, But I think all of us have little e enemies, like people who in any way act in ways that even irritate us. And put this teaching into practice because it's it's what, I mean, early Christians were known for this. And this is one reason why Christianity was even able to get off the ground when they were just a tiny little sect because it made no sense. So that's the first one. Okay, if, if you belong to me, if you say you know me, you will do whatever you can to, to practice nonviolent peacemaking with people who are really hard to love because this is what I first did for you. Okay, let, let's wrestle with this as a community. Okay, so that's number one. Next, moving on to an equally digestible topic is you could sum this up with the phrase sexual justice. Sexual justice. So verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that any, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we read this and we think, Jesus, Jesus, you're being kind of curmudgeon It seems like you're coming down on people. It's actually the opposite. Because what he's saying is, your personhood is of such value 
that it, it is an affront to God if somebody, even in the, the privacy of their own mind, fantasies about, fantasizes about possessing you sex, sexually. And what he's doing here is he's injecting a radical ethic of justice in this highly patriarchal culture, which devalued women, treated women, all women, as subservient to all men, and treated women as essentially objects for self-gratification for men, rather than honoring them as image bearers of God. And in our supposed, alleged, forward-thinking, progressive society, we think we're no longer like this. We are. (laughs) It's just different wrapping. And Jesus is saying, "If, if you know me, you will have no part of this. And so as we move into application, and by the way, for those of you who are wondering if we're going to cover divorce, we're not. We're going to get to it later in Matthew, but essentially the same principle is applying there. He's, in this culture, men could quickly divorce women with impunity, but women could be prosecuted if they tried to divorce a man. So he's, he's leveling the playing field for men and women with divorce. That's essentially what he's doing there in summary. Uh, but as we talk about applying this principle of sexual justice, so I think a couple of things to note. One is Jesus isn't talking about attraction for what it's worth. So and depending on, especially if you grew up in a very conservative or very religious environment, like your thought, especially as a woman, if someone's even attracted to you in any way, then you should feel guilty. Or it's like this idea of if you're walking down the street and you see a good-looking man or woman, woman and you think, that's a beautiful person, that's somehow wrong. Jesus isn't talking about that. God made our bodies and he made men's and women's bodies to be beautiful. So to see an individual and see them as attractive is not wrong. What he's saying is it's lust, which is the next step, which is going beyond that and saying, I want to possess you or I want to be possessed by you sexually if you're somebody that I'm not married to. And so this is we're calling it justice because justice is giving a human being what they're due on account of the fact they are a human being. And Jesus is saying is people aren't to be, anytime you do that, right, you're using them as a, as a commodity, as kindling for your own self-gratification, right, rather than treating them as somebody made in the image of God. And so this is why this is about justice for Jesus. So it's not just attraction, right? It's going beyond that to lust. Second, and this is where we can exhale a little bit, I hope, Just as we're talking about this, understand that this impacts every single person in the room, so don't think that you're the only one wrestling with this. Okay, sadly, lust is an equal opportunity employer. I'm affected by it. You're affected by it. The person next to you is affected by it. Okay, so this is something we can work through together as a community. Um, And then uh, number three when it comes to this topic is, I think it's helpful. Anytime we talk about Jesus' sexual ethics in general, is to emphasize the good, uh, because often what, often how the church has addressed this issue is only emphasizing the bad. And a metaphor that I found helpful is, it's like teaching somebody how to cook by only telling them how to avoid food poisoning. It's like, there are so many beautiful things to be had with food, but if all you say is, here's how to avoid food poisoning, you ABC, you're like, okay, why don't you want to cook anymore? It's the same thing with sex. Like, God designed sex to be good and pleasurable in a way to image his love for us. And so I'd like us, as we think about this topic, even though, yeah, Jesus does highlight the bad emphatically, because in any of you who have been in a destructive relationship with this, with this topic, you know how damaging it can be. 
Okay, but also God wants us to see the good. And so let's think about that together. And I made a list of nine really amazing things that are good about the sex ethic that we get in the scriptures. Uh, sadly, with all the material we have to cover, we only have time for one. <laughs> so just keep coming and you'll hear the other eight. But I, this, is, this is the one that I think is most applicable to this teaching specifically. And when we follow Jesus here with sexual justice, think of it as a positive invitation to protect people. And here I'm thinking specifically with the application to pornography. Right, because a, just a really simple but huge step we can take is by refusing to watch pornography, we are directly contributing to the protection of people, especially women. Because it is a empirical fact that many, many, many women are trafficked, raped, beaten, silenced, and driven to addiction and suicide in order to silence them coming about, about, about the horrors of that industry. And more and more people, not even Christians, are coming out about this. And so w- when you engage in that world, even if it's hypothetically a video of somebody and people who really, they all really want to be doing it, you're still contributing to and furthering the heinous evil of that industry. And as I say this, just note that, remember, this is an invitation to protect people. And pornography, it, I mean, tragically has affected probably every single person in this room. I'm affected by it. You're probably affected by it. And so the point of this and the point of Jesus is not to guilt you or condemn you or shame you. Okay, it's, it's so pervasive. In fact, now the, I think the average age that a boy is exposed is age nine. The average age that a girl is exposed is age 11. These parents, something that you need to know. It, it affects all of us. And so, but there is, God doesn't view you as ugly. And there is real healing and forgiveness and renewal that you can find today if you come to Jesus. Okay, and Christ loves to work with you if you just acknowledge what's going on in your life. If there is something going on, take it to him and work it out in community. He gives so much grace. And so don't believe the lie, right, that, oh, man, I just have to be silent about this. I guess I'm just going to be stuck with this thing forever. And I've been so, even just a couple of you over the past couple of months have, have told me about this issue and how you're working on it, like with one or two trusted people. And I've been so encouraged by that. And so I want this to be a little bit more of a normalized conversation, if that makes sense, where, like, somebody should feel the safety in a group to bring up that this is something that they've been battling with. And suddenly they're not overtly or covertly, you know, shamed or condemned because, oh gosh, wow. You struggle with that? That's horrible. Okay, meanwhile, I'm not even loving my enemies. Okay, but this is an incredible opportunity Jesus gives us to, to walk with each other in community to, to protect people, right? To play a small but really powerful part in justice for those who are, who are really suffering. All right, so sexual justice. Number three, you guys okay? Good? Okay. Number three, you can summarize with promise keeping. Okay, promise keeping. And here we see this in verse 33 through 37. 
And Jesus says, again, you've heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And in summary, what he's getting at here, there's a lot of context we're not getting into just because of how much we're covering, but essentially what he's saying is it was a common idea in this age that if you made a promise according to a specific formula, then you wouldn't have to keep it. And so, in other words, he's saying, if you're a disciple of me, you are to build complete truthfulness into everything you say, even casually. And if you're like me, I think the initial response is, like, woo, like, thank goodness. That's not as awkward or as difficult or as serious as the first two, nonviolent peacemaking or sexual justice. And I think that's precisely the problem. As similar to enemy love, we just, we've become so accustomed to exaggerations and white lies and flaking out is okay. But what Jesus is saying is if you are somebody who bears the name of God, what does that communicate about the nature of God when your yes is not yes and your no is not no. And so as we think about application here, I think a number of you teach me a lot in this area. Okay, so this is, I don't say this because I think all of us are really bad at it, but it's so pervasive in our climate that inevitably bleeds in here. I think a really important application for us here is this idea of flakiness and good intentions without follow-through. All right, and so here's how, here's how one commentator put it in summarizing, uh, summarizing this ethic. He says, when a Christian says, I will be there, the Christian will be there. When a Christian says no, the Christian means no. When a Christian joins a group, community group, discipleship group, or enrolls in a course, or accepts an invitation, the Christian fully means what that act entails and is faithfully there. Yes means yes. In other words, we should honor our commitments even even when we say something casually. So if you just casually tell your spouse or friend, I'm going to do that, you should do it. If you tell your friend, I'll meet you for coffee in a few weeks on this morning, you are now booked. Even if something supposedly better comes along or you would rather be home alone that morning, which is me on almost every commitment. <laughs> Sorry for those of you. I'm just kidding. I'm, God's growing me. You should be there to the point where the person that you're meeting, they should have, I mean, as much assurance as they can have that the sun's going to rise, that you're the kind of person that says, if you're going to be there, they know you're going to show up. And so they're going to go because they're, gonna know, they're not going to get a last-minute text from you saying, hey, you know, my friend just came in town. I think you're going to be there. And you'll, you'll rearrange your other schedules accordingly, right? Because you've built complete truthfulness into what you said. And when it comes to good intentions without follow-through, uh, there's some pretty interesting research that apparently us humans, we are so obsessed with projecting an image that we're a good person that one of the reasons why we so often say, yes, I'll do something, and then don't follow through is because just the act of saying, yes, I'll do it, makes us feel good about ourselves, where then even if we back out, we're not thinking about the fact we backed out, we're just still focused on the fact that we even said it and we had a good intention. <laughs> right, and so I just, if 
people tend to describe you as flaky or if you commit to going somewhere and the general air in the room is, I really don't know that that person's going to be here, you know, just because that's generally how, how they behave, then, I mean, we need to see that as an egregious affront to the way of Jesus, right, and how it reflects or does not reflect God and his character. And so, like, in love, I want to encourage you guys, I want to encourage me to, if that, if I do it, if somebody else in the community does it, to step into the uncomfortable conversation of addressing that with each other so we can create these better relationships where when people look at our community or engage with us, they're like, wow, because you know Jesus, you're one of my few friends who actually is always there or you always do something. And if you can't do it, you don't lean toward yes and then back out, but you'll say no. Right? So maybe sometimes for some of you, it's just you're too quick. To, maybe it's just saying no, and then if you realize you can, right, saying yes as, as things get a little further along. Okay, so nonviolent peacemaking, sexual justice, and promise keeping. Okay, wait, these are ways that we enhance relationship and create portals into heaven for people. And so now, like, just a couple reflections as we think about this. So first, motivation. What's the motivation for this? Uh, because while, I mean, God sometimes plays hardball with people, Right? When we're being idiots, he's not afraid to play hardball. And sometimes we do need somebody to get in our face, just be like, hey, you're really still hanging on to this grudge and just not going to this person because it would be too awkward and you need to go do that, right? Because that's what God did for you. Or you, you, you flake out, you know, two out of five times. We're, we're going to do something. Right? Whatever it may be, sometimes we need that hard word. But what we need most of all is what's at the heart of the kingdom of God. And what I love about reading the Sermon on the Mount is the man who is giving all of these commands, he is not asking you to do anything that he has not first applied with rigid strictness to himself and how he treated you and how he continues to treat you. When he went to the cross, he was coming to you when you were an enemy to bring you into, to bring you to his table, to eat and drink with you. Thank goodness Jesus does not treat us with a sexual injustice, if you will, where he treats us as an object, right, for just sexual, or for, um, for self-gratification, right, or for his own agenda, right, but he, he always treats all of us with the highest of dignity and honor. Thank goodness Jesus isn't flaky. Thank goodness when he told us, yes, I will never leave you or forsake you, he has never left or forsook us. Okay, and so willpower and trying hard, that matters, but it will never change a heart. Love and fidelity that you experience will change a heart, and in Jesus, you have it. Okay, and so that's the motivation we have through which to live this out. And second, as we think about essentially what Jesus is getting at here is the, an ethic of holiness, uh, i.e. holiness is the new way of life that Jesus invites us to when we're in his kingdom. We're a people that are set apart and strange compared to the world. And in our moment, as much as any other moment, I've noticed in my own heart and in many people in the church, there's an aversion to holiness. Even like even you hear the word holiness, and you're like, whoa, dude, you're getting a little, little stodgy. And, you know, but all holiness is is looking more like Jesus. That's what holiness is. And maybe you push against holiness or looking different because you grew up in a church or religious or conservative upbringing where 
people talked about holiness, but it was done in a very rigid way, and they did it really just a way to feel better about others and to judge others and condemn others, and so you've run away from that, which by definition isn't holiness because humility is encompassed in holiness. Or maybe you're resistant to holiness because in the circles you run in, or just in general how you like to think of yourself, you know that if you practice these things, okay, enemy love with nonviolent peacemaking, sexual justice, promise-keeping, you may, you'll probably be seen as naive or bigoted or behind the times. And you, some groups tend to really emphasize, okay, let's not bomb people, but we're going to be liber- really liberal when it comes to sexual ethics. Another camp is right, extremely liberal, let's bomb everybody, but let's be really conservative with, with sexual ethics. So often you're going to be seen as a hero or a villain depending on which group you're in and depending on what day and age we're in. But the point is, is we're disciples not to shifting cultural norms. We're disciples of Jesus. Okay, when we live as his disciples, there may be some times where we're not really understood, and that's okay. This is how he's, he's always worked throughout history. And an incredible example of this is there was a man named Fred Shuttlesworth. Love that last name. Uh, Fred Shuttlesworth, he was a black pastor who lived in Alabama in the 1950s. And on the day that Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act on September 9th, 1957, uh, Shuttlesworth drove his kids to school to try to help with the integration of the school system. And on his way to school with his children, he was met by a white mob who beat him close to death with chains and baseball bats. And when he regained consciousness in the hospital later that day, there was a reporter there. And the reporter asked him, what are you working for in Birmingham? And he said, for the day when the man who beat me and my family with chains can sit down with us as a friend. And Shuttlesworth continued to nonviolently advocate for justice and peacemaking. He was arrested 40 times. His house was bombed on Christmas Eve while his family was in it. The list goes on, and until his death in 2011, he remained a disciple of Jesus who insisted, A, that the Bible demands we seek systemic change and equality, and B, he would even in his darkest hours affirm the dignity of those who hated him and hold out the possibility of forgiveness and even friendship. And Shuttlesworth, along with Martin Luther King Jr. and and others, they they continued to practice the way of Jesus, enduring beatings and German shepherds and jail, all while refusing to respond in kind and insisting on nonviolent peacemaking and enemy love. And through this, opened a window into heaven, exposing the evil of American racism and changed the world. And you and I, we may not have the eloquence or the degree of courage that Martin Luther King Jr. had, Okay, but we can all show a degree of positive good towards somebody who's mistreated us. We can all take small but important steps in the realm of sexual justice. Okay, we, we can all work to improve to be promise keepers, a people who mean what they say and do what they, and do what they say. And through this, as Jesus always does, we'll work miracles. Let's pray.